Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing, plus all of our other podcasts, over at blisterreview.com. And once again, we are broadcasting this episode from our home here in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado. And now would be a good time to start planning a trip here to experience our wide open spaces and do some running or hiking or biking on our vast network of trails here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. Okay, a few days ago, Brendan Leonard and I had a conversation with Ethan Newberry, AKA the ginger runner and the man behind the burgeoning ginger runner empire that he is building with his partner, Kim Tashima Newberry. And yes, we really need to get Kim onto the off the couch hot seat sometime soon. So we're gonna see about making that happen. Anyway, Ethan and Kim are great. We love what they are doing in the running space. And if you somehow aren't already up on the podcasts and the reviews and the incredible films that are being put out under the Ginger Runner moniker, well then please immediately head over to gingerrunner.com and you can thank me later. Oh, and by the way, I just watched again their film, The Last Mile. And this was like the fourth time I've watched it. And this was the fourth time that it has made me tear up. So yeah, that's four for four, Ethan, you jerk. But as you know, turnabout is fair play, and we actually got a little payback in this conversation where we get things started in kind of an absurd way, which is sort of what we do around here. But then we learn a lot more about what led Ethan to starting The Ginger Runner, how it has evolved, and how it has become a really meaningful and moving channel that now inspires and comforts a lot of people in the running community. So that is what we have on tap for you today. And it is my real pleasure to share with you our conversation with Ethan Newberry. Here we go. I just go straight into a question, Ethan. I don't, I don't let you say thanks for having me because I feel like that's always not that, not that fun. So Ethan Newberry. Thanks for having me, Brandon. (laughs) Really appreciate it. Thank you. This is great. See, Ethan, I'm always very pro, like Thanks for having me. I'm so honored to be on this amazing show you two have created. So Brandon doesn't like, I'm like, we just, he throws, he throws the pot roast right into the trash. I don't know why he does it <laughs> every time. That's it. That's actually, he was a lot, it was a lot more efficient getting to the thank you part. I don't, I don't think he said amazing podcast either, but anyway. yeah, I didn't, I didn't go down that route. Uh, I'm happy to change my script. Uh, whatever you guys want me to say. I mean, you sent me this email of, of here are lines you must say. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to try to stick to those as best okay. as possible. <laughs> okay. Ethan Newberry, Ginger Runner. Thank you so much for being on our, our little running podcast. Thank you so much I, for having me. This show is amazing. I am just honored to be here. You two are the best. Yes. Yes. We'll That's all I've out. ever wanted. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you, when is the last time you have been on the interviewee side of the microphone? You do a lot of interviewing. It's actually been been a while. I'm trying to think of what other podcast or anything. I, honestly, this it's been a while, and it feels it feels weird, man. It's always weird to do it, and I think that's why I don't do it often. Is because I mean, I love I love talking with people just in general, but 
I think being asked, I, at some point this morning, I feel like I'm going to try to turn it around and ask you guys questions. I think that's mm. just my default. Well, yeah, a little, a little legit Lou interview jujitsu. It's going to happen. So I think the reason you don't get asked to be on that many is because your voice is too sexy and all the podcast hosts will never, it's just like we all lose automatically. Yeah. So if this is just a natural gift, that's amazing. But if it's, if it's truly this sexy filter thing that (laughs) that you mentioned, I want to know where you get that. I could use that. I mean, I'm happy to turn the filter off. Uh, Let me just take a couple of clicks. Hello. So happy to be here. I uh, one, it's really early. I'm really sorry <laughs> that I even had to go down that path, but uh, I appreciate the, uh, the comments on on my voice. Anyway, you I, so I did actually Google your name with the word interview to see. I was like, well, has anybody interviewed Ethan in a long time? And it looks like like 2015 was probably the one of the more recent ones. There was like a thing in Runner's World. You're on the Ultra Runner podcast. But then there's this video on YouTube uh, from 2011 where you went to VidCon and um, a lady uh, interviewed you quick. And this is uh, this will this will transition a little bit. Um, but at that time, you had a different YouTube channel, and which is now all the videos I think are gone. This helps me understand how you're so good on camera and at, at all the other things you do is that you were, you wanted to at one point be an actor and a comedian and it helps me realize or understand how you're so comfortable in front of the camera, talking to the camera, everything. It's not just the, the practice of doing ginger runner, but you did that for a while. Um, that was like, you moved to LA in 2007. Is that right? That's exactly it. Yeah. Can you talk about how, how that went, but how you decided I'm going to just bail on that and then, um, found your way into doing running content. Um, I appreciate you doing a Google deep dive. Uh, you know, it's, it's easy to just kind of stick with the, the banter and, and that sort of thing, but to, to dig in a little bit that I appreciate you doing some of the background checks just to make sure that I'm uh, a real person. Um, (laughs) 2007 was, so I had a, uh, I lived up here in Seattle. I lived there. I live in Seattle now, but um, basically right out of college, I went right into motion graphic design. So I was doing, I was working for a board game company and doing, do you remember the game Seen It? The board game Seen It? It had a DVD and a board. Oh. It was like the first DVD board game. It was like a movie okay. trivia game. You'd play clips on your TV. You'd answer them. You guys, it was all the rage in 2003 to 2005. Uh, so I was doing motion graphics at this company and it was uh, amazing as like my first job working up the ranks, uh, creatively doing, you know, different type type of graphic elements and stuff like that. Simultaneously, I was doing improv comedy on the weekend. So I'd been doing improv comedy, like any free moment I had at a, in high school and into college was spent on stage trying to make people laugh here in a local, uh, improv comedy theater. And I was just doing it so much and loved it so much. And performing and entertaining was such a a dream that in 2007, I was just like, you know what? I want to try this. Uh, I feel like if I don't give myself a shot, I'm going to regret it. So I had this great job that I was like, I'm quitting. I, I, I have to go I'm young now. I, I can do these sorts of experiments. I got to go see if I can make it in LA. And 
see if I can get the auditions I want to get. Can I get on TV? Can I get in movies? Uh, can I make people laugh on a bigger stage? So I moved to LA in 2007. It was a, it was a tough decision, but I will, the way, the way I always phrase it is, um, I'll never regret moving to LA. I would have always regretted not. And I'd rather not have any regrets. So going to LA was a tough decision, but holy crap, it was the best ever. And you spend a couple of years in LA and it, I mean, it pretty much destroys any soul that goes there with any hope. Uh, it just basically goes, cool. You're done. You're like, you're stupid. You're an idiot. You're not worth it. And the first few years were really, really tough. So I ended up actually falling back a lot on motion graphics and doing graphic design and stuff. So I was doing people's websites. I was working in uh, trailer houses to do movie trailers, to do motion graphics for movie trailers. Um, but the hours were terrible. But you could find ways to still do improv and take classes and uh, the schedules worked you really, really late at night. So you'd have to work with the movie studio super late at night. But during the day, you'd still have time to like go on auditions or, you know, go take classes and stuff. So I was doing that full time working and full time, essentially acting. And over the years, uh, in 2006 or seven, also right around the time that I moved, YouTube was created. So YouTube had just started and it was sort of a it was more of a video sharing platform. So like, hey, if you have a video and you want to show a family member this video, upload it to our platform and you can share it with your family. And that's all I used it for for the first two years. So I started my original YouTube channel back in 2007 and was just sending links to my mom. Like, hey, I'm in L.A. Look at this funny video I made. And she, you know, she'd never reply. <laughs> um, and that went on for years. And I was doing comedy videos and finding a voice and finding a way to sort of have a creative outlet while simultaneously going on auditions. And it was the best opportunity for me to do what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it on my own timeline and not have to report to a boss or report to a director or to a studio. And it was just freeing. It was sort of this creative freedom that I had never really experienced before, except in improv where there really, you know, there are very few rules and you just got to perform on stage and that sort of thing. And as that evolved over the years, and in 2011 is sort of that turning point for me. So I don't know the interview you're talking about, but that's funny that the 2011 is the year that I feel like I realized it wasn't what I wanted to do. So I gave myself the opportunity to go to LA and to pursue comedy and to pursue entertainment uh, on, on camera and I loved it. And I had some really dark years and had some really great years. But I also found that like uh, creating my own comedy content, comedy is so subjective. Comedy is always evolving. Um, I found like the way I, uh, I can tell you the story of how I sort of decided like, yeah, this isn't for me. If you yes. want me to tell it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there was so over the years from 2007 to 2011. So it's not, you know, four years, but a lot happened in those four years. I mean, I was essentially broke for most of it, uh, having to beg people for money and, and basically eating a subway foot long. You buy one foot long a day and you'd be able to eat it for multiple meals over the course of multiple days. It was basically, how can I make my dollar stretch as far as possible? And then you start booking some gigs and you start 
getting some work and getting some attention and casting agents are like, oh, let's bring Ethan in for this. He's really funny. Or he looks the part for this or this uh, role that needs someone that has like the burly beard or whatever. He's perfect for it. There was one audition around 2010 where I had started running. I was trail running a little bit more. Um, actually, this wasn't, it was a little bit later than 2010. So it was, honestly, it doesn't matter. There was this audition that I got a call for over the course of a weekend while I was out trail running. So I had discovered LA is this incredible Mecca of trail running. There's trails everywhere there that it's just outside the city, a 20 minute drive and you are in like trail running heaven. So I spent a whole weekend out in the backcountry, like camping and trail running, doing huge miles, just like, this is it. This is the life. Like, I love doing this. And I got an audition I had to go back for on Monday. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to the city. The audition's exactly what I want. It's for a beer commercial. They need like a rugged looking outdoorsy guy, like think camping with a beard and plaid shirt. So I'm thinking, I got this. <laughs> I literally was just camping, literally backcountry. I do love beer. I've got a beard. Uh, I go to the audition. I go to the waiting room. Uh, and you you sign in. So with auditions in LA, you like you have a sign in sheet, and there's usually a waiting room full of people. And I open the door and I kind of look around. Everyone's got red hair. Everyone's got a red beard. Everyone's wearing a plaid shirt, half of which are probably the same shirt I'm wearing. <laughs> and I go to sign in, and there's two other Ethans signed in before me. <laughs> So not only am I, I look exactly like everyone here, which is, that's pretty common. Wearing the same thing everyone here is wearing, also pretty common. But now the two dudes in front of me also have the name Ethan. So when they come, when they come out and they're like, okay, we need to see Ethan and Ethan and Ethan, you know your shot is over because the cast or whoever, the director or the casting agent or whoever that's in that room is going to go, well, I don't want any of those Ethans. It's too confusing. So I was kind of at this point where I was like, this is, this is how I'm trying to get a job is I'm, I'm not only competing against the people who look exactly, if not way better than me, I'm competing against people with my same freaking name in a room where they don't care about you. It was just this weird kind of moment where I went, I don't want this life. I don't want to drive two hours from the mountains where I'm having a great time through shitty traffic to go to an audition that I probably won't book. I didn't book it. Uh, trying to appease people for a brand to a thing that's just ultimately, where's the happiness? Like, mm -hmm. am I connecting my happiness to booking that job? Or am I connecting my happiness to the weekend I just spent out in the backcountry, like ripping trails, hanging with friends, drinking beers, and just loving. I mean, that commercial was essentially designed uh to represent exactly what I had just lived. And rather than act like I really am enjoying this and hoping for a paycheck, I was like, why don't I just go live it? And so it was sort of at that moment that I, I went, I don't want, I thought I did. I thought I wanted this LA life. I thought I wanted this, this dream of constantly pursuing acting and comedy. And I mean, it's a freaking grind and it's a grind that I had some success in. I booked great, great roles and, and really fun stuff. And I got to work with amazing directors, some of which are who my, some of my best friends still, but it also showed me like kind of what I didn't want. And some of this, some of the stuff in life that just didn't matter ultimately. And that's sort of when ginger runner, uh, was beginning to 
fade into my life as far as uh, I was making videos about shoes and gear that I would buy and just I want to put my thoughts on camera. So it was sort of an amalgamation of all the things I really enjoyed, which was being on camera and talking and trying to entertain. Um, I really love making music. I really love making movies. I really love uh, motion graphics. I really love doing digital art. And it was sort of a bringing together of everything that I loved in a way that I, I could do what I wanted when I wanted, how I wanted. So it was sort of the best of the early YouTube days for me. And it just was a lot more freeing and the community is amazing. So you take all those things and it's like, why, why would I ever have gone down that other path uh, for any longer? It was just, it was really tough. And it, it, any, anyone who's listening that might be an actor or want to pursue acting, do it, do, 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 do it. I will never regret trying it. I would have always regretted not, but it put me where I am now. And for that, I am forever thankful for those, those years, those four five, six years in Los Angeles pursuing acting. Hearing you lay that out, I think maybe the part of it that does sound particularly rough is that like nothing that you described has anything to do with any kind of meritocracy. It wasn't like, well, I'm okay, there's three Ethans, but I've got a chance to show that I'm sort of better at this. It's just someone walks out and is like, points at you or doesn't. And the sort of randomness of that and then you're like okay well and then i don't know how you don't do anything other than just like internalize like well i guess i kind of suck today or like how that doesn't start to feel extremely personal like Mm. it's kind of i didn't point at you and somehow i guess if it was me like well they didn't point at me i guess there's something about my personhood (laughs) and it's like wait a sec this starts getting i mean maybe some maybe the successful folks or, or the mentally successful folks are able to just say, yeah, it's random. You know, no, it's no value judgment on me whatsoever. I'm cool. Just going to go about my day. But, um, I don't, I don't know. I haven't talked to a lot of folks who've gone through this practice. And, and I mean, I don't know, were you able to sort of say, oh, it was just the day and you bounced because it was so random? Or was it like, man, this feels like a kind of, I just got kind of scanned and I yeah. was found wanting in some way that they're never going to, it's kind of Kafka-esque a little bit, I guess. It's, it's funny because I think having a YouTube comedy channel from two, uh, 2007 to 2000, like they overlapped a little bit, but I think it was 2000, uh, from 2007 to like 2011 or 12. I think that set me up better because you're con- you, you have to have thick skin. To be, to be a presence online in some capacity, especially when you're sort of like performing mm-hmm. or doing stuff, especially comedy, you know, like if you're doing a comedy video or a sketch video and you, you serve it to the audience, you got to be ready to be razzed. You got to be ready to have thick skin and just deal with the comments. And there was a, you know, listen, I was never truly that funny. I tried really hard and I think that was the problem. Um, it it ju- there just comes a point when you can take it. And when that transition, you, you transition that to going on auditions and being, I guess the difference is that they are literally looking at you in a room and they're deciding whether or not you are good enough for their project right then and there. They don't tell you to your face. They tell you three days later when they don't call. So the whole premise of the industry is ghosting. 
while simultaneously giving you the occasional little biscuit of like, oh, we like you. Uh, you'll occasionally get a call back. The call back is like, nailed it. Nailed that first round. This is great. I got a call back. That means they saw me and they liked me for who I am and they think I could be good on this. And you go in for the callback and then you get ghosted again. So it's almost like the second date, third date. And then they're just like, eh, I thought I liked you, but something about you is even worse than I thought. And then there's the third where you'll get uh, an avail or they'll call you and go, we like you enough that you're top three. So we need you to hold the dates for the commercial. You're on avail. That means you are making yourself available. You cannot do anything else. You sign a contract. It's like you're on avail. And then you're sitting there going, they do like me. Maybe they'll, maybe they're going to call me and bring me in. This is it. I'm like top three. This is great. I might've booked a big commercial or a TV show or something. And then you get ghosted again. They're like, oh, sorry. No, they found another redheaded guy that was much better connected than you. So there's all these opportunities for them to say you're not good enough. So you really have to grow that thick skin. And that took me years. It took me years. Because it's not like right It's not like right when you land in LA, you're going to auditions and you're booking commercials or TV shows or movies. I mean, that took years to even get into an audition room for a commercial, let alone a union commercial, which is, you know, that's where actual money is that you can pay rent with. But it took years to get there. And so by that point, I think you're already kind of broken in. You're already just like kind of a sad person anyways going. <laughs> I mean, it got to the point where every audition I just looked and this was maybe the success that I pulled out of it is I looked at every audition as an opportunity, but I also put zero investment in it. I was just like, I've got three auditions today or I've got zero or I've got three this week. I don't care. I cannot care about them. Because the second I care about them, the second that gives them weight and that gives their decision weight, which then trickles down to me. And the, if I don't give them weight and don't give them that satisfaction, then that doesn't affect me as deeply as if I did give them all this power over me. Um, having a simultaneous YouTube channel, having the ability to do motion graphic contract work and stuff like that sort of gave me a safety net. That if I didn't care about the audition and I didn't book it, so I couldn't pay rent that month, at, uh, at least I knew that I had these other things that I could invest my time and creativity into. So at least I'd get a little bit of happiness. So that, so the audition sort of, they basically weighed less in my, in my scale of life, I guess. And that's when YouTube was just sort of becoming exactly what I wanted to do. Is like you had a side hope, basically. Like this side is this hope. could take off. Yeah. Like a side yeah. gig. But boy, this conversation is making me feel really awful about like the bachelorette being like, you know, you're talking about acting or like the show business being like dating, but this is like the confluence of show business and, and dating. dating. So it's like doubly awful. Like ugh. I mean, that's yeah, I mean, hey, it's it's a pandemic. So uh Kim and I, uh, my wife and I fell down the rabbit hole of watching survivor. Um, we, I wouldn't touch that show with a 10 foot pole at all over the last couple decades since it's been on maybe a periphery uh, awareness of, Oh, this person, won survivor. Cool. Have no interest in it. But the last year we became obsessed. Huh. Uh, we ran out of content to watch. So we started watching that 
And it just like we dove in. We're all in. We're we're probed all the way. <laughs> but it was crazy to watch this show with that sort of L.A. background and that uh, that Hollywood mentality and kind of see like these contestants, especially in the later years, those contestants are so desperate to be on the show and they made careers out of being on the show. Even if they didn't win, that these people were making careers out of this. I can see how that is. People want to be on these reality shows, the bachelorette, the bachelor, they want to have a career outside of it. They don't care if they win the bachelor or bachelorette. They don't care if they're chosen because they're going to, they're going to get deals out of it. So it's, it's a career path now, which is wild, but it's also really sad because you like, the disappointment that I would feel at an audition, I can only imagine it's a thousandfold on a show where you are publicizing your dismissal. Um, that's that's got to be a wild mind trip to be on one of those types of shows. Listening to you talk, I think of this. Um, there was this interview with Jonah Hill about, I think it was Jonah Hill, about acting versus directing. And he was talking about, as an actor... I am just this component of what's going to be in the movie. I am, you know, the director is the painter and I am, I just have to show up and be the best, say color purple that I can be. I just have to be the best purple I can be. Mm. And I wonder how much more you enjoy because you do almost everything yourself for your films now, you know, that's which is extremely impressive considering, um, how often people like me fuck up audio. Um, just like, Wow. Whoops. Forgot to turn that on. Um, (laughs) so I wonder how much more you enjoy being the painter versus, um, just showing up and trying to be the perfect, uh, ginger Ethan, uh, brawny man, paper towel guy. Um, in the, I didn't book that by the way. I did not book that. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of people didn't book that. Um, (laughs) but how much, uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, about the, that whole process, or if there's a Mm. piece of it that you just hate, you know, like, actual video editing or, or whatever. I mean, yeah. So I guess, uh, we're 10 years into ginger runner stuff, which is pretty cool. Also, congratulations, 10 years to you, Brandon. That's, that's fantastic. <laughs> it's a big milestone, man. A it's, decade. Uh, congratulations to you. It's, it's, yeah. we'll talk about yours. That's, that's really impressive and, and amazing. So, um, uh, but yeah, uh, uh, I think it's a great question because it's probably the same thing I ask myself pretty often over the last few years is what do, especially in the most recent years, is like, what do I enjoy doing the most? What do I enjoy doing the least in, in our constant pursuit of a balanced life and a happy life? Like what are the things that we can find that give us that joy, the things that we can continue to lean into that, that provide us with some sort of uh, uh, return. And what are the things that we can begin to kind of shave out or, or transition to someone else or something else? And, I would say I really enjoy directing. Um, it's something that I never thought I'd really ever do, uh, especially even starting Ginger Runner. Like the whole point when I started was to just create reviews and to talk about gear in a way that hadn't really been done before, being honest and you know entertaining. And anytime I would film one of my races or runs, it was more for me to be able to look back on um because especially with these physical pursuits like a marathon beyond 50k 50 miler 100 miler there's a part of me that's like i can't believe i'm doing these Mm -hmm. things and i think a lot of you know a lot of ultra runners and athletes they get to that point where they're like i can't believe there is there is that voice inside that's like i can't believe i just did a 50 miler 
yes, there's going to be a lot of people that are like, cute, 50 miles. It's adorable. Uh, I do that for breakfast on a Saturday. But there is this level of we are a weird subsect of people who are doing these crazy distances. And it's it's impressive. It's really cool. So me documenting these races and runs was a, a way for me to tell my future self, look what you did. You didn't believe you could. You did it. So even if at whatever moment I am in the future thinking to myself, you can't do these things anymore, you're too old, or man, your heyday is over, these films will serve a purpose to you, hopefully, as a past voice telling your future voice, shut up, try it, you can do it, you can still do it no matter what. So when those race videos started to gain popularity and people were like enjoying them and wanting to watch these race videos and finding meaning out of them, similar to the meaning that I'd hoped to find out of them. It was really neat and it was really cool to see people's reactions to little projects that I would throw together over the course of a couple of weeks, you know, whether it's following Kim on her first 50K or me documenting a 50 miler and a 50K back to back, like showing the suffering side of it, not all candy coated because it, it, it's never candy coated out there. Uh, I, I found myself really enjoying that response. It was almost like I could create... I could create a piece however I wanted to create it. It could be 20 minutes. It could be 30 minutes. It could be an hour. It could be three minutes. But I could create it in a way that was my voice telling the story with my music, with my graphics. And it didn't have to be Oscar worthy or Hollywood worthy. It didn't have to be an amazing piece of art. But it was just mine. And people really liked it. And people would be drawn to it. And of course, there's people who are like, this is stupid. This is dumb. You know, why are you filming yourself? Enough about you. But there's still that part of me that feels the creative outlet when I do stuff like that. So it doesn't have to be about me. It could be about anybody. And it's transitioned a lot in recent years to other people because I find more joy in telling other stories. And it, I've really, really enjoyed that aspect of it. Being able to go. Uh, uh, Caitlin's movie, Summer of Wonder, is the most perfect, or not perfect, but most recent example of I was able to focus on the project as a director in a way that I hadn't been able to yet. And it felt really cool. It felt like a leadership role and I had a creative vision and I could vocalize that and, and put it into a pitch deck and do all these things. And people were like, yes, this is cool. Let's do this and let's, you know, enhance it. And it felt, it felt right. Um, the stuff that I don't like doing is, what I love doing at the very beginning, which is a lot of the editing, a lot of the nuance editing. Now I still have a, uh, there's still a lot of times I enjoy putting the, uh, you basically are presented with a table full of puzzle pieces. It's a, it's a 15,000 piece puzzle and you got to put the pieces together. This puzzle though can go together in multiple different ways. So it's not like one puzzle piece goes to one puzzle piece. It's a, you can make whatever you want out of this puzzle, but it's still a puzzle. And uh, that editing is sort of that, that's where your hands are on the puzzle pieces. And I love parts of that. When it comes to the videos that I do regularly, like reviews, that stuff, I'm like, oh man, I, I get this. I could close my eyes and edit a review like nobody's business because I've just done so many over the years. So those are the types of things I'm like, ah, I really would love to bring in someone else to handle that. And we have some great friends who've been helping out recently, but I, I still enjoy doing it on bigger projects like the Summer of Wonder movie and stuff like that. Yeah, it's been interesting to, to to travel this path and see 
where I'm at now compared to where I was at the beginning. Just like, I just directed a movie. Like how fucking weird is that? It, if you told me 30 years ago that you'd be doing that, you'd be tell, looking at yourself going, you're crazy, man. You're crazy. Or 10, 10 years ago. Right. I yeah. Mean, even 10 years yeah. for, for a client. Um, it's funny you bring up editing. I, I'm, so my, my experience, I think if people may have, if people are only not super familiar with you, they, they probably would have heard of where dreams go to die or seen, seen that film, which is where I discovered your stuff. And I remember seeing it pop up on YouTube and going, Oh wow. Another Barkley documentary. And then going, nobody sponsored this. How is this? This is free on YouTube. How can this be any good? And I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll watch this. And, and it's interesting because you acknowledge that people should watch another documentary first in, you know, it's like, if you haven't seen that, that explains this entire race. So you should watch that, which is a, which is a pretty bold move. Um, and, and I was like, I'm, I'm just sort of, I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was skeptical. I was just like, how does this is so unique to me. And then I, the moment I realized like you really knew what you were doing was there's this, I think it's like 17 minutes in where you're, you're so the premise of the film is, you know, Gary Robbins trying to complete the Barkley, Barkley marathons. So every lap he comes in has like his aid station set up and he's very direct with people about what he needs to happen in order to, he's a pro, you know, he's like, when I come in, do this, do this, do this. And that's what will help me get on my way. And he says, every time I come into this aid station, you need to shove a banana in my mouth. Like that's the, and like to get that, whatever, hundred calories replace, you know, nutrients and whatever easy food. It, it makes sense. Right. But there's this, you know, this banana just orbits him for like, and there's multiple cuts that you see different people holding the banana. And it is just, I'm just like, watch this banana. Like I'm telling people and it just keeps going. <laughs> Finally, after like three or four cuts, he just goes, I'm not touching that banana, but the <laughs> banana stays like, and Ethan's holding the banana at certain points. Like it's in like, he never eats it, but it's like, this is, this captures exactly what people do in ultra marathons. They're like, okay guys, tomorrow I'm going to need you to blank. And then when the, when the actual reality happens, it's like, they're like, fuck off. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not changing my socks, you know, or whatever, whatever it is they said, I want you to make me do this no matter what I say. But it's so funny. And I'm like, this guy gets a gets this like ultra running and B gets editing. And this banana is like the best part of this film to me. I mean, <laughs> obviously there are so many great things in it and it's just incredible movie. You know, I've made multiple people watch it, but like the banana to me is like, this is filmmaking right here. And this is how you do filmmaking. Um, that moment was an accident in the puzzle, in the puzzle putting together, uh, editing that movie. It was a monster, man. I bit off way more than I could chew. Uh, cause I'd never done anything of that length and trying to tell a story of that length. Um, it, I mean, there's a reason why it takes big budget movies months to go from shooting to post-production to actual release. And the amount of people that have to look through project to make sure it's good before you drop it. Uh, it was a monster, but that scene is a funny moment in just in this household because it was about two or three in the morning when I was editing that scene, kind of piecing things together. And I didn't see the banana connection hmm. until I did until I saw the moment where Gary's like, I don't want that banana. I was like, didn't he just, didn't he <laughs> say in an interview that he wanted the banana? So I went back and looked at the interview footage and sure enough, he's like, Hey, when I come in, you got to give me banana, no matter what I'm going to say no or whatever, you know, give me banana. I was like, Oh my God. 
how much footage do I have of someone trying to give him a banana? <gasps> a lot. There's a lot of footage of people trying to give him a banana. This one aid station. So I'm editing it together, editing it together, thinking about timing and trying to figure out like, is this, is this going to work? So I, I piece it together and at two 30 or three in the morning, I watch it and I just go, yes. Mm. I just scream and I wake my wife up. She's like, what? I was like, I just found my Amelie moment. This is it. This is it. <laughs> the gnome. Yeah. She's like, what? I was like, it's a banana. It's the banana. And I was like, I was so excited. I like wrapped up editing for the night. I went to bed and I went back to watch it the next day. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's funny. Like, <laughs> I hope it I hope it works. It was it's subtle enough where if you're watching and paying attention and you you're like my sense of humor, you'll get it. But if you're just there to watch Gary get pummeled by a race, <laughs> you're not even thinking about the banana. You're like, is he going to survive? So if you watch it and, and listen, you'll see it. And I'm glad you did. I love that you saw that moment. I, people have to, right? People have to catch that. Or if they don't, it's it's a fun thing for them to catch. Well, it's also, it's it's super subtle because you're you're listening to him talk the whole time because I think it's his first lap around the course ever. Is that right? And he's like telling people how it's going. And so you're listening to him. I haven't watched him. it since 2016, so I don't. I, I bet you've seen it. I bet you've seen it like 400 times cumulative, you know, like, yeah. so. Um, but yeah, that's that's fantastic. But yeah, you don't you don't notice it. It's, it's a great piece of filmmaking for sure. Um, I appreciate that, man. I guess I, that's a that's a fun transition, I guess, to talk about your your marriage and um, partnership with Kim. Um, was it 2015 you decided to try to make Ginger Runner full time income? 2015. That, okay, yep. March. Um, I just rewatched your 10 year video and I thought I wrote that down, but I didn't. Um, so can you describe what that jump was like? And then also, um, when you and Kim, cause is it full time for Kim as well now? Yeah. She's a full yeah. support. Was that at the uh, same time or, or did that like, was that okay? Yeah. Can you talk about what those conversations were like? Like, Hey, we should just, you know, not, we should just make this our, our thing there. So that was probably about a year after that audition thing I mentioned where I was like, this is, what's the point? Why am I driving across LA and trying to, trying to make, why, why am I trying to be an actor? You know, the things I love about it, I'm not doing performing and simultaneously doing this YouTube stuff on the side. I was like, this is providing me with so much return on investment. I'm there's an audience. And what was really great about the audience was that they were mature in the sense that people would come and watch a video and they wouldn't sit there and tell me how terrible of a person I was uh, because of YouTube comments. That's just what you would expect. Um, But the community was much more like, wow, this is amazing. Really appreciate that. Or thanks for the info on the shoe. I bought a pair and it was great. You know, the comments were much more like humans sitting down and having a conversation with you as opposed to kids just trying to make you feel bad about yourself and, and question every life choice. Um, there was a moment. So it was that audition. And then there was a moment closer to 2015 where um, if you are doing anything on YouTube or trying to pursue a per, like a full-time YouTube career, which is a thing that didn't exist 10 years ago, you're never going to make ends meet unless you have, you know, millions of subscribers and, you know, like a single video would be lucky to make a couple of bucks. Um, at, in 2015, I just, there was no way to make ends meet. Uh, I didn't 
I could continue to pursue acting. I could continue to push into that and go on auditions and just try to find gigs that would pay. I could, uh, again, kind of backfall to motion graphic design and doing contract work, or I could really make that choice of what if we went all in on Ginger Runner, something that we both are enjoying immensely, um, and try to do it full-time. It was around that same time that Patreon actually came to be. It wasn't anything that was in existence before. There was a couple, there was like one or two websites that were uh, subscription-based websites for creators, but they were invite only. So you kind of had to be in the know to get access to those and to be a creator on those platforms. One of which became Patreon or Patreon ate them up. I forget which one it was, but Patreon basically was like, we want to be the place where creators can create while simultaneously having a subscription model uh, sort of thing. And it's like, man, it's, it, it looks like it would work for what we want to do because then we sort of become the NPR of reviews, which I'm a big fan of that way. We don't have to, we don't have to look into sponsorships. It's one thing that I wanted to do run from the very beginning was I wanted to review gear honestly and unbiasedly. I didn't want to have to say, Today's video is sponsored by the product that I'm reviewing. That just, it feels wrong, feels dirty. And so Patreon was sort of that opportunity of, we could continue to do reviews in the way that we wanted to do them while simultaneously having a community rally behind us and feel a sense of ownership and a sense of um, community and connection. It was a bit, it was a big risk because at that time, Kickstarters and GoFundMes and stuff like that were really popular, especially Kickstarter. Like if you had a movie, you started a Kickstarter and I was really against that. I kind of, I had to sort of self-reflect and go, well, what would I want to sign up for? What would I want to support? There's very few Kickstarters that I would support because I just didn't believe anything would come of it. But with Patreon, you were sort of on the hook because if you didn't create something for a tier or whatever for a month, they would just leave. So there was no commitment on their part. They could literally show up and say, yeah, I'll, I'll support you on Patreon for a month. But if you didn't deliver, uh, they, they could just leave. And so you kind of had to put your career on like, let's just be consistent and let's create cool stuff. And I think people will come and people will hang out. It was a big decision. So the conversation with Kim was sort of like, what do we enjoy? The ginger runner stuff. We love the music. We love the travel. We love the running. We love the community. We love all of this stuff. Should we push into the Patreon thing? Is it something that we should do? No one's really doing it in the space. Uh, I think people might get get on board if we do it right. And within the first month or two, it was overwhelming how many people were like, yeah, we're here to support. Even if it was a dollar, you know, like a dollar a month or something uh, was just, it was emotional. It was a real emotional time because it, I just didn't feel like we would get there but we did. And we got to a point where we could pay our rent. And that was it. All we cared about was being able to pay our bills. And that's how it's been every day since. It's great to have spending money, but that at this point still doesn't matter to us as much as having a community of people who just enjoy the content. And we get so much more out of that. Um, and there was one other aspect of that in regards to Kim is that uh, she's from Canada, so the immigration process is long. And uh, immigrating from the from Canada to the U.S., I think a lot of people gloss over as, well, don't you just sign some paperwork and wait some time for, to get a green card? And 
It is long and arduous and stressful and emotional. It is a difficult, difficult process. And I cannot emphasize that enough uh, for people who do not know. And it's especially um, tolling on the person who's immigrating because they essentially are saying farewell to their uh, homeland country in pursuit of, uh, uh, of the new uh, country. And they, like Kim couldn't see her family for years. She couldn't go back to Canada for years. And that was just how it was. Um, and so during this time, she also couldn't work. She had to pay taxes, but she couldn't work. So when, when, when she was finally able to work because it took years to get to that stage where she, uh, had her green card and her visa, um, we were so ingrained in, in ginger runner stuff and all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes from like shipping to event coordination and all this stuff that she was just I want to do this with you and this is all I want to do. And, um, she has since also be, kind of began to grow her own community. And, uh, it's been a great, great partnership that goes, I mean, of course it's a business side, but also just being married to her is a privilege, man. It is, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky. And she's been through so much to just stay here and help, uh, through the immigration process. Was it, it's too bad. I was thinking like, it's your brand is a ginger runner and it's too bad that Kim doesn't have like red hair. Cause then you could have just added an S to the end of it and be like, yeah, it's <laughs> both of us, the ginger runners, but oh, man, it would make branding so much easier. I know. <laughs> how do you feel about, how do you feel about the brand 10 years later? Like do people see you at events and, and call you Ethan or do they actually call you nope. ginger runner? Yeah. Ginger. <laughs> it's always ginger always. Um, but that's, I, it's okay. I, the name, uh, yes, of course I have red hair and of course that's where the name comes from. I was, uh, the ultimate reason for ginger Runner was I've always sort of lived with the stigma of having red hair and growing up, it was a, a bullying tactic. It was certainly something that people could use against me. Uh, so growing up being ashamed of my red hair and feeling like I was always the ugly kid and the kid that no one wanted to be around there was a sense of me wanting to sort of take ownership of that word back and sort of like wanting to turn it into part of me as opposed to a negative. Um, so by starting ginger runner, it, it was always me sort of celebrating the fact that I have red hair and, and, you know, allowing people to sort of celebrate it with me. Um, so even now, 10 years later, thinking from a, <clears throat> excuse me, thinking from a branding perspective, I'm like, well, it sort of pigeonholes me <laughs> ginger runner. So now it's just this one person he's got red hair. So funny. Um, but there's also a sense of pride that, uh, I started it and I stuck with it and I didn't try to rebrand to, to, you know, appease a certain demographic or something. You know, I could have easily just created some umbrella trail running brand sort of thing, but it's unique to me in the sense that, I feel the ownership of it. So yeah, I still like it. I still like it. Of course, Good. I wish I had a bit different umbrella brand, but I don't care. Ginger <laughs> runner has been the thing that people connect to. I think Oh, there's, there could be, so I think of like being a rapper and like basically picking out your name when you're like 16 and mine would, I would have been a disaster. And then like, if you're successful, you got to stick with it. You know, like think of like Coolio's hair, you know, you can't, even though it's going away, he still has to keep doing the hair and because it's, you know, however many years later and 
like the band Hoobastank, I think the Oh god, Hoobastank, man. Yeah, like the um I think the lead Incubus singer Incubus and Hoobastank for life, bro. Yeah, but like the lead singer did something on social media a few weeks ago was like 20 years later, I can't believe I named the band Hoobastank and you're like yeah. <laughs> got to live with that too, man. It's just like you can't just change it either. You can't be like, "Hey, we're now known as this," you know. So, I think about that when I think about branding I'm like hmm, man that would be rough you know? you're all in the moment you're like this is great it's fine and then yeah. a few a few years later you're like is it and then even more <laughs> years later you're like it wasn't guess i'm going um, with it yeah yeah so i mean there's a little bit of me that just wishes of course that would be more um blue sky that it would be a little bit more generic but there's another part of me that's like well we've created an yeah. identity here yeah and I think people sort of come to hope that if a ginger runner, if ginger runners at the front of a video or at the end of the video, that the quality is of a certain level or a certain look or a certain style. And yeah, I would have a hard time rebranding. I think at this point, which isn't to say <laughs> I not, want it's to impossible. Yeah. yeah it's at not least, impossible. It's just, at least you don't have a huge like inkling to like take up kayaking and make that your thing. Cause then you're like, <laughs> shit. <laughs> Doing this. Damn I don't it. want to do this running thing anymore. Damn it. Yeah. I want to do it different. Since we're talking about sort of evolutions in what you're doing and how you're doing it and some of the business of it and perspectives on all this, I'm still curious about, you've talked about sort of 2011 and 2015, right? Is these kind of, I don't know, watershed moments and going back back to 2011. I mean, you've said a couple times, you're like, I don't know, I've had these shoes and you happen to have a background where you knew how to cut stuff and make edits and get this up on the internet. Um, but I'm always interested in the like, how much of a blueprint or a roadmap or how much of a vision did you have say around 2010 2011 for like i think this might go here as opposed to just being like i don't know i kind of knew how to put stuff up on the internet and i thought i could talk about some shoes and then the last kind of part of this very convoluted question is how much were you looking at the landscape of running media itself and either saying, I don't like this thing that's happening in running media, or just, I see a gap in running media. Again, I'm sorry for the, the long-winded question, but I, you know, sometimes these things can, the, the catalyst can be, I don't like what's happening in the landscape. Sometimes the catalyst can be, I see an opportunity or a gap there. And sometimes it's maybe a little bit more of just like, I don't know, I felt like doing it and I knew how. So help me understand, like, 10 years ago, you know, how much of a blueprint or what the vision was like, or maybe there wasn't a vision. Yeah, there. I mean, I think that's kind of a, a two-part question, but I actually think they go together really well, because I think, and if I miss an aspect of it, just yeah. guide me to it. Yeah. But in, in 2011, uh, at that point, I had been running for years as more like staying in shape and staying fit and really loving it as a pastime. I think most runners go through that phase of, oh man, I'm going to train for my first half marathon. And oh man, I'm going to train for a marathon. And you kind of go through this growth and you fall in love with running. And you're, it's just like, how did the world exist before running for me? And 
from 2005 to 2011, that was running for me. Um, so by 2011, I was really into gear and how gear could help running and anything I found online was garbage. Like it, the, the, the videos were essentially, I love, I, I love going to the local running store and most of the videos I would find would be like the local running shop person talking about a shoe they just got in. So I don't want to say it's garbage because that stuff wasn't garbage. It was exactly what it needed to be at the time, which was a running store marketing their shoes or their products online. Uh, so that was innovative for running stores to be able to do that, be able to post content, like come down to this local run shop and get your shoes. Here's what we got in star or in stock this week. So I wasn't finding reviews of gear that was anything beyond like reading the bullet points from marketing one sheet. So a brand would send the one sheet for a new shoe and the person on the video would be like, this shoe has this drop. This shoe has this weight. This shoe feels like this, but there was no real review. And if there was, it felt like an advertisement. Like it felt there was, I don't know. So I was I w- in my mind, I was going, oh, man, what if I just reviewed shoes? Like I've been, I have so many pairs. I run in so many different things. I have opinions, not that my opinions matter, but what, how could I build? Actually, even at that point, it wasn't about building anything. It was just about what if I was able to utilize a little bit of humor and a little bit of entertainment with a little bit of education. Cause what if there are other people out there like me who would just love running and they just want to find out about a shoe. And so I think I've had a lot more awareness about this recently after editing that 10 year video is because I was able to go through all of my old content, which I haven't watched for 10 years and kind of see the evolution of, of the channel itself. The first year actually only had a handful of videos. I think 2011, I had maybe five videos uploaded for the whole year, which I did not realize until I looked through in my head. I was going, yeah, 2011, I started making weekly content and did blah, 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 number of reviews. And then when I looked back, I was like, man, I barely did anything in 2011. 2012 is when I started to go, okay, let's start doing this more regularly, specifically with reviews and also uh, documenting like the STP, which is the Seattle to Portland bike ride or some other events that I was doing, like it, it sort of evolved a little step there. And then by 2013, it evolved another step by filming uh, a road marathon. And then 2014, it evolved even more filming more races. Uh, 2014, 15, 16, were sort of like film everything. So many races overworking yourself, just doing everything you can to film everything. So that evolution for me is sort of, my plan. It w- I, in 2011, I didn't start going, here's where I want to be in five years. 2011 was very much, I don't, this isn't a thing uh, except for something I enjoy. I enjoy doing it. I enjoy putting in the work. It flexes a muscle. I don't get to flex off and I get to talk to people about something I really like to talk about. 2012 is where I was like, oh, people are enjoying this. Cool. I'm going to, I'm going to start doing more of this. This feels really good. So I would say it wasn't until 2013 or 14 is when the voice in my head was sort of, you can probably do this now full time or at least dedicate a lot more of your daily time to doing this stuff. Um, And even then it was like, you're going to get bored of this. Pursue it now because you like it. You're going to get bored of it because that's for me, that's what always ends up happening is it's usually three years, three years of doing something and I get bored of it. Uh, But I've been doing this now for 10 years and I'm not bored of it, man. I'm not even close to bored of it. I get to, I get to make music. I get to edit movies. I get to meet crazy, cool people. Uh, 
I get to ha- I get to talk to a community every day of people who run, uh, who deal with injuries, who deal with mental health, who deal like there's so many facets to what we do now, just as runners, not ginger runner, but just as runners. There's so much to this world that feels great. And I, I, I like leaning into that. So I didn't identify something missing from the running space. I think I just identified something missing from my own life and sort of allowing that to fill the gap. And I think that helped a lot. And the space has changed. I say space yeah. and referring to like the YouTube running space and the online running media space. It's evolved so much just in the last three years. There's so many more channels out there. There's so many more review channels or running channel based stuff. Um, it's awesome. I get asked a lot in person. Uh, well, <laughs> when's the last time I saw anyone in person? Uh, I, I remember these questions happening. I don't, wherever they happen just in regards to what do you think about all the new running media and stuff that's happening? And I love it. I absolutely love it. I think everyone can find their own voice. And if, if in 2011 I was trying to find my voice in running and in 2012 and 13 and 14, I was finding what I really loved. If someone has that opportunity now, man, more power to them because it changed my life for the better. It changed Kim's life for the better. Um, yeah. Do you feel like uh, after 10 years, you have 171,000 YouTube subscribers? Do you feel like, like, did you look back and go, okay, I made it? Or do you feel like making oh. it is quote unquote, like down the road a little bit? Uh, no, I, I, I think I gave up on the term making it a long time ago. Cause I think that, I think my LA life also taught me that no one ever makes it. So even, even famous actors and actresses who are crushing it, a list. Uh, there's lots of stories that go around Hollywood where those actors and actresses, they might be at the top of their game. They might be booking, you know, billion dollar movie or whatever, but they're constantly hustling to get the next movie. They're never satiated. Like they never feel comfortable. And I don't feel comfortable. Like I'm not sitting here going, we're good. 171,000. That's it. That's the magic number. I'm not that not even close. I feel like every day is sort of a, we got to keep grinding. We got to keep grinding. So I don't think there's ever going to be a, I made it, which I think is both a blessing and a curse. Cause I think it continues to push you creatively and you have to sort of evolve. The only way to, I think to stay relevant is to evolve. But at the same point, like we have made it because we have an amazing audience and we've been able to do this professionally like full time now for years. And it feels good to be able to say that we can do that. So I think it's, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. I truly don't think I'll ever be able to look and go look at any numbers or statistics or algorithms and say, yeah, that's it. That was, <laughs> that's secret sauce. We made it. Kim yeah. light the candles on the cake. Right. <laughs> we made it. Yeah. You've also, you've also though, you know, already said in this conversation that, you know, I don't know. I mean, this is always interesting. I I feel like this is some elusive, weird, I don't know, made up goal, fantasy, unhelpful thing where like, I mean, on one hand, who cares if you've made it? I mean, once, I mean, somebody who's grinding, when you're at the point of life where it's like, I need to buy one Subway 
foot long and I need that to last me two days. Now that's a level of like, you know, yeah, that is a real grind with, um, you gotta, you, we want to try to push up past that level. Right. But once you're at the point where you can sort of afford, I don't know, a can of black beans a day and like a couple pieces of bread, like at some fundamental level of, you know, um, subsistence, I don't know. It's like to just be able to be satiated, to use that word, that's actually kind of a gross feeling. Like to have a nice meal and you get to the end where you're like, I ate too much and I feel terrible now. Like who actually, why do we think that that is where we want to land? That seems like fake, fake news kind of thing to me. And you're the one who just said, and I bet Brendan and I would agree, like three years and you're kind of bored with something or certain elements of the work, right? And so if we're in an if we're able to be in a situation, or I think this is the pinnacle, where if you can do the work in an area that you enjoy, spend time really trying to master a certain skill set, um, a new thing, and then maybe when you, if you're lucky enough to be like, oh, I feel like I'm pretty good at that, but I don't feel like I'm really learning now anymore. And now you're the one talking about you're in a position to maybe start handing off aspects of that work to other good, smart, energetic people and let them go through that experience of mastering it while you're sitting here moving on, directing in new ways and creating your own events. That's, that's the thing. That's the thing, right? And being satiated, that sounds a lot like death to me. Yeah, I I think... I think, I mean, you're, you're nailing it on the head. Uh, there's, there's two things there. I also want to just acknowledge the fact that like surviving off of a, a subway foot long for a couple of days is a, is a part of my life that I, I don't want to ever compare to anyone else's circumstances. And I fully realize that I'm very privileged to have had that in my life and also be where I am now. And I know that there's a lot of people that are probably currently trying to make ends meet. And I don't want to, yeah, no, no, I don't f- want to take anything away from the, those people's experience. And, and I don't want to say, look at me. Uh, I came from uh, a really rough time. I'm not going to say that because I feel very privileged and blessed throughout my entire life. I was very fortunate. Um, in regards to what you also just said, I agree. I think wants and desires and creative outlets and everything, it sort of has to evolve. Uh, and so over the, over the last 10 years, looking back, it's like my wants and, and creative needs evolved from starting with reviews, which was fun a year later. I'm now sort of recording races, which was an evolution. Mm-hmm. And then from there I'm recording my own music for all my own videos. And that was an evolution. And then in rec- making a full length feature film, that was an evolution uh, and so I feel like here, 10 years later, I'm still finding those evolutions in person races. Um, man, the pandemic really fucked everything up because there was this plan of we were doing all these in-person things that we, we were so excited to do. And it just put a big brick wall right in front of it that, of course, we'll be able to tear it down and, and, and do at some point. But there were these natural evolutions in what we were doing that provided us with excitement again and keeping things fresh and exciting, I think is the only reason that we're still doing this stuff 
is because there's so many things to continue to be excited about. Um, I tend, I tend to really like self-analyze and be self-aware. So when I'm finding myself getting into a rut as a creative person, I'm sure you guys are the same way, but as a creative person, you can identify the rut pretty quickly. It's easy for me to go. I'm in a rut. Uh, I'm not enjoying doing this. I'm not enjoying doing that. I'm not finding that same joy out of it that I once had. So that to me is, is a rut. And what's the difference between a creative rut and a rut that is going to eventually turn into a hole. And that's sort of where there's a, there's a, a bit of an art to that, to figure out that vein. Do I continue to push in the rut to hopefully get out of it? Or do I let that rut go and I try to find something completely different and move on from there? So I think it is a constant evolution. I think being satiated is a pitfall. I think that, man, as a creative person, I can't ever imagine being satiated. And I'm not saying that just for the podcast or just saying it to be uh, philosophical. I just don't think, I don't think I could ever be satiated. And if I am, I think I'd be mad at myself because that means I did something wrong along the way. Um, yeah, there's so many things that there's so many new things that I'm getting inspired by, especially in the last couple of months. Uh, there's a lot of really amazing digital art that's happening out there. Um, NFTs and all these, like I'm obsessed with seeing artists get paid and artists get success and people who have been working their whole lives Mm -hmm. for other people. Like Mm -hmm. I'm obsessed with that pursuit, people who are pursuing things. You, you you work for a company, you work for an ad agency, or you work for a studio or something, these artists, and then you find a way to uniquely find your own path and get paid and and blossom. And we're seeing that right now with, with things like NFTs and stuff. And it's so amazing to see artists pursue something new. And I, I just like, I, I love that. I'm obsessed with that. And it's that sense of desire to, to, uh, desire to push in harder and be more creative and, and, and push your own envelope. You're never satiated. You're always trying to find something new. Um, and I hope that continues here. I hope we can continue to push in and try to find something new because that's what I feel like that's what just keeps me alive and keeps me happy. Yeah. I like your chances. (laughs) Yeah. I I like your chances. You, you touched on this just a little bit um, earlier uh, with m- talking about mental health um, and you've, you've talked about it in a couple of your films, um, anxiety. And I'm curious about this, like how it manifests for you. I've kind of run the gamut myself. I can, I can do insomnia, heart palpitations, uh, somatic cough, like lots, lots of fun things. I'm curious about how you've sort of dealt with it over the years. Um, I think one of the things you, I'm going to paraphrase just a little bit, but you've said that like you, you love doubt and pushing into doubt. And like, that's sort of the essence of ultra running where you don't know if you can go X distance with, you know, um, complete this race. And I imagine that filmmaking is the same thing. Thinking about tackling a huge project, like where dreams go to die or some of your shorter films. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how that, about you, how you've battled that or how that's come up and, and kind of where you're at now with it. I mean, I've, I've basically been dealing with it as long as I can remember. Um, uh, I was going to therapy when I was in seventh grade, trying to figure out why I was afraid to go to sleep at night. Uh, cause I thought I would die. And 
I couldn't eat at restaurants with my family because I was afraid I was going to get sick. And like anxiety has just basically plagued me my entire life. And it just, there was a, a, a period of my life where I wasn't hampered by it. And um, it was weirdly when I moved to Los Angeles and was pursuing that, I think it was a different form of anxiety that I would deal with there. And then it sort of reared its ugly head again uh, around 2012, 13, 14. And it would sort of, part of the reason why I really wanted to pursue ultras and long distance running was because it was a way for me to face a lot of that shit head on. When you tow the line of an ultra, when you don't know what's going to happen, you're going to be out there for hours and hours and hours and you don't know Am I going to be able to finish this thing? Am I going to get sick halfway through? Am I going to um, collapse on the trail? Is it too hot? All these things. When you face that stuff head on, at least at that point for me, it was a sense of control. And I think that was how I was dealing with it, was trying to control it. Um, If anyone has ever suffered from anxiety, that's a really tough path to go down because anxiety is one of those things that's like, hey, right when you think you got control, you don't. And I would say it was around uh, Cascade Crest 100, 2015 for me that I was, I was really pushing into that embrace doubt moniker and, and, and really like, I don't think I can complete this event. And I remember having a panic attack in the porta potty at the start line of Cascade Crest 100. Um, I didn't want to get out of it. Like I didn't want to get out of the porta potty. I was like, this is, I'm going to die in a porta potty uh, before a hundred mile race. And this is not, it's not how I want to go. I'll be totally honest. But I, you know, I did eventually step out um, and my wife was there. My family was there and it was sort of this, I'm going to do it for them. And I'm going to do it for this crew who's come out to support me. And I'm going to do it for the viewers who, who watch the channel. And, and I'm going to do it for myself. And I ended up finishing that race, but it was, it was hard, man. There was big storms, uh, really, really tough stuff happened out there. Um, a lot of hypothermia stuff and basically everything that bad that could have happened during a race that was outside of a runner's control happened. And like reflecting back on that race, it was sort of that pinnacle of you faced a lot to start that. And then you faced even more during it and, uh, did it cause more damage than good. So coming out of that is very much like, wow, I can't believe I was able to do that. But it also sort of left me with this additional level of anxiety. Now, anytime a storm brews out on the trails, like I now get waves of anxiety. Um, anxiety evolves and I, I hate that it does. But for me, it sort of has. And it's it's something I deal with every fucking day and I hate it. But I think talking about it helps a lot. And I think since I've talked about it publicly, there's been a lot more people who have talked about it publicly or have reached out and been like, dude, I have the same thing or I deal with it this way or it manifests itself this way for me. And that's been really helpful. Uh, I think everyone's mental health journey is going to be unique to themselves, but I do think that there is this sort of envelopment um, of togetherness, people who suffered in different ways, like kind of coming together and realizing like, Hey, we're not alone in the overall suffering. How you suffer is certainly going to feel unique to yourself. But the fact that there are other people out here that are also having their own versions of it, I think has helped me a lot. 
And I remember the checking at 50 K a few years back, I was running it as sort of my first real ultra race back since, uh, for a couple of years since Cascade Crest, I think, um, I did a couple after that, but checking at 50 K was sort of my coming to grips with my anxiety and how it has evolved in a race environment. And it was like, I was going to, I'm going to finish this 50 K and no matter what it takes, I'm just going to get it done. I'm going to face my dragons and I'm going to slay the shit out of them while I'm running this thing. And while I was out there, uh, another runner, Maria Dalzat, she's a local legend here. She's super badass, fast runner. She was out on the course as well. And she came up to me at an aid station. She was like 10 miles ahead of me or something crazy. But we happened to pass through the same aid station. And she she comes right up to me. She's like, hey, my name is Maria. I also have anxiety. And I am out here because of you hmm. talking about your anxiety. It was really, it was a really special moment. Um. Yeah. Hmm. Anxiety sucks, man. Hmm. It totally sucks. But that moment was really special, you know, because it showed that I wasn't alone. That's a hell of a thing that you, I mean, you've talked about in this conversation, the community. We've talked about how, you know, your vision for how you were going about growing what you were putting out to the world. But, dude, that's a whole nother level when it's like what I'm grinding on and what I am putting out and however it's evolving and all the rest, it's like, man, this is actually truly, truly helping people because you started making little funny running shoe review videos one day and now you've got people coming up and being like, you're making a huge difference in my life. That's something. It's It's got to be way more. something. Way more satisfying than I bought these shoes because of your review. It's mm -hmm. like a hundred times more meaningful, I I suppose. I can't can't express how it has changed Hmm. uh, my perspective on what I, I guess, what I do. Because it really did start with a, I'm just a goofy guy making goofy videos. And yeah, I'm documenting my runs and showing some of the suffering and stuff out there while simultaneously showing future me that you can do these things. And I think it was, Hmm. it was a pretty pinnacle moment having an elite runner Hmm. tell me that something I did or said maybe inspired them to get back at the front of the pack. Uh, That was a sort of weird moment where that happened. And uh, I absolutely finished that race and Loved every second of that back half because of that. It was a weird sort of, I was in a dark headspace at that moment too. I was in this rough patch. And when you have someone like that come up to you and say, hey, I'm here because of you. It turned that race around and it made it a positive experience. And uh, ever, I mean, not ever since then, but that's been a lot more prevalent is people saying, I appreciate you being open with your anxiety. It's helped me talk about it either to my partner or to my family or to my therapist or it's, I don't know. It's an interesting byproduct. I never intended for the channel to be like a mental health channel and it it hasn't evolved into like self-help or anything, but I think there's just enough of honesty there that I think people are really, uh, can relate. Um, and that's a, it's a, that's a much bigger benefit of this whole thing than anything else. Of course, like being able to pay rent is great and having a community that's supportive is amazing. But having people talk about honesty is a huge byproduct. I was going to ask um, if you 
I guess this is maybe like a closing question and this could probably fall into three or four different buckets for you, but do you get hit up for advice, um, on different things, whether it's running gear, dealing with anxiety, filmmaking, like all the things that you do. Um, and what is a common, like, what's a common thing that you get asked? I'd say the most common question is, Hey, what shoe should I run in? And <laughs> That's it. That's the whole question. Um, I get probably a hundred to 200 of those a day across social media. Wow. Whether it's a YouTube direct message or message there or Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. Um, I gotta, I gotta confess something right now. That is a bot (laughs) that I created years ago that just (laughs) literally finds you. And yeah, I'm sorry. It just I was wondering why they're, yeah. they're all named Eric. It's yeah. weird. I just like I don't get it. Sorry, dude. I thought it'd be funny, and now it's like way out of control. So my apologies. Uh, just the bot him. became sentient and just like created additional <laughs> yes. bots. Yes. And now it's and now it's needs it's going to kill the human race unless it sends it or maybe that's Terminator. Anyway, he has yeah. not told me what you. He yes. has not told me what you. Uh, I mean, that's the ultimate question because I think when. I sort of established myself as a voice in gear reviewing as sort of, you know, every I'm an every runner. I'm not an elite. I'm not anything other than just a regular dude running. I think that has allowed people to sort of go, Oh, well, whatever he runs and I want to run into. So what's the best shoe? So I don't think any, no one intends to come across as like you, uh, you owe me your opinion. You know, it doesn't come up. I don't think people intend that way, but I do get, Lately, especially, I've just sort of been finding that people really have a sense of, I watch your videos, so you owe me your opinion. I need you to tell me what to do because, you know, I support you. I watch your videos, so tell me. Uh, And it's really funny. I don't tend to reply to a lot of messages just in general because of the massive amounts of like, what shoe should I wear? What shoe should I wear? What do you think of this? What do you think of this pair of laces from this shoe from 2014? I'm like, I don't know, man. So I, w- I, I wish, I wish it was a better answer. I wish it was a more uh, creative answer, but it just tends to be what shoe should I run in? And my answer, if, if anyone's listening, it's like, well, tell me, dude, what shoe should I run in? My answer is always whatever feels fucking good, man. Whatever shoe feels the most comfortable to you. My opinion is that I think we can get wrapped up a little too deeply in the, I'm an overpronator. I'm a supinator. I, I'm on the forefoot. I, I'm a forefoot runner or a midfoot or a heel strike or whatever. I think, honestly, if you just try on a bunch of shoes and whichever one is the most comfortable, that's going to be the one you like to run in the most. Um, and not to get caught up on all the, if, is my heel rolling right and stuff like that. Um, that's ultimately it. And I, I, I think a lot of people hate hearing that because I think they just want to be told uh, there's going to be the people out there who are like me who want to dive into the details and find out why a shoe behaves a certain way. And that that's why I do what I do. But I think a majority of people are just going to want to just, just tell me a good road shoe. Like I just need a good road shoe. Get me started. And ultimately that's a tough question because everyone's foot is different and all that stuff. I feel like there's space for a satirical video where you talk about the best running shoe, the running shoe everyone should run in. And then it's like the air Jordan two or something. <laughs> one the ones are probably the least comfortable but like and you're just holding up yeah. the, and they're impossible to get so that's even funnier you know just the wood the wood clogs uh <laughs> yeah yes. yeah i think Chuck Taylors, great. yeah <laughs> dude they last forever uh, like centuries we're talking eons yeah bro. yeah 
Huh. Well, awesome. Um, man, uh, we'd love to talk more, obviously, but this is, we're taking up way too much of your time. So thank you so much for, for man, taking I got all the time. time in the world. Let's go another hour and a half. Let's do this. It's locked down. I gotta take a, I gotta take a pee break then. If we're gonna do that. <laughs> I gotta answer yeah. what shoes are the best. <laughs> Here it is. It's Eric. Eric keeps messaging me. Huh. I don't know who this Eric yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> My apologies again. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. But Ethan, this really has been a pleasure. And, you know, Brendan and I will share with each other something that you've put out and, and the rest. And, you know, you're somebody who uh, here at Blister, I mean, we we got started 10 years ago. And so as we were kind of looking around in the running space at like, who was doing what, or better put, who was doing anything in terms of running shoe reviews that we actually thought was good. Um, you know, that's how I kind of first came across you back in the day. And um, it is incredibly fun and cool for me to, I mean, you've laid out a lot of your background and story and the evolution of what you're up to. And it's, it's, um, it's inspiring. It's really impressive. And, uh, I mean, it, the whole running community is so fortunate to have you and Kim doing what you're doing and, and to see it expanding. And um, so this is a real, it's a real honor and a real pleasure to, uh, to have this conversation with you and uh, uh, keep doing what you're doing, uh, please. Thanks, Jonathan. That means a lot for both of you guys. Thank you both. And congrats on 10 years to you too. I, I think hmm. anytime you reach a, a milestone like that, it's, I don't know. It, 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 it was weird reaching 10 years and thinking back. Cause I'm like, it didn't feel like 10 years, you know, it doesn't feel like a decade, but you go back <laughs> and you look through and you kind of go, Holy shit. I mean, there was a lot that happened in that decade. And, uh, yeah. so reaching that milestone is a huge, huge event. Uh, so congratulations mm-hmm. to both you guys because, um, we did it. <laughs> yeah, we did right? it. A bunch of t- 10 years. Can't wait something. to retire. Right. i think we i think we all still have some things on our plates i think we all still uh uh yeah i think we i don't think our work is done yet not even close uh, not me i'm satiated (laughs) just kidding i'm just kidding (laughs) um but ethan really thanks so much and uh yeah i can't wait to see the next stuff that you're putting out and uh be well and uh, I hope we get a chance to circle back and, and just reconnect and sort of catch up and get, get, get the updates with each other. But this has been really fun for me to have both of you in on this. And uh, so, yeah, I'm going to secretly look forward to the next stuff. Anytime. Well, not so secretly Anytime, since, guys. I, since I just said that. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right, guys. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. Well, that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. I want to say thanks to Ethan and Brendan for the great conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please be safe. Please take good care of yourself and everybody else. Please keep moving forward. And we will talk to you again next week.